everyone, and happy Saturday. Welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. And, of course, it is always our goal to make a difference. And so we welcome you this uh, Saturday, this this April Saturday, to another um, brand-new show. And um, I am I am enthused to have a uh, a repeat guest who has been on I think perhaps a half a dozen times and and that um, you know that attests to uh, the the degree of quality information and, uh, that he has to offer with us and uh, we have Dwayne Bowers with us. Um, a licensed professional counselor, a trauma expert in all manners of trauma, a consultant, a hypnotherapist, and uh, many other things. But before we bring him on live and in person, just want to say good morning to my co-pilot, Delilah. Hi, uh, what's on your Saturday jacket today? Well, being here on Saturday with you. That's right. That's the end of the day. I'm... I'm very pleased that we're having Dwayne back. It's always a pleasure, and it's always so informative for our guests, the information he brings. And I think, you know, we'll never know how many people truly are helped by what we are presenting to them as listeners. So, you know, anyone who who is out there listening that needs this information will get it, and hopefully they will use it to better their situation and um, so I'm really excited about this show once again to have Dwayne back and speak about trauma and I I, you know as we go into I don't know if you're going to do a big introduction with Dwayne but I have a question off the top of my head Um, Mm -hmm. when we talk about and this is for Dwayne when we talk about trauma um, can you Define trauma, number one, and then are there different categories or subcategories of trauma that people can identify with? Wow. I had that on my list. Good to you. You're starting me off big time, huh? Yeah, and good morning to you, too. <laughs> yeah, good morning. Well, thank you both, Donna and Delilah, for having me on again. And, and um, Donna, do you want to just jump in and, and, and I'll just start with that question? No, you can it, it, feel free. I think that's an excellent, excellent question to, to start with uh, because we're, the show is sort of focused, the techniques that we use for trauma. And I know that just looking at your itinerary on your website and the types of presentations that you're doing internationally, there's many different permutations and types of trauma that you deal with. So I think Delilah's first question is very appropriate. So go for it. (laughs) Great. Well, first of all, defining trauma is not as easy as you might think because um, I'm a mental health professional, and in our profession there's really only one type of trauma that we have been given um, diagnostic um, criteria for. Uh, and that is post-traumatic stress disorder, that tends to be thought of as the most extreme type of trauma or the most extreme reaction to trauma. But, you know, people have varying degrees of a a traumatic response uh, depending on the intensity of the event and and their reaction to it. And, And remember that trauma is very often a result of the meaning and value that I'm giving an event. Two people can go through the same event one will be traumatized, one won't, and that's because of the meaning and value they're giving the event based on their life experience, which gives them their beliefs and their thought patterns and their emotions, etc. So in answer to the question, is there a definition for trauma, not necessarily, but there is what we call traumatic response. And, and you can kind of measure the, the, the degree to which someone is responding to an event 
by what's going on in their body. And I've talked about this on the show before, that, that mm-hmm. whole um, hormonal response that happens. And that happens more and more intensely until it reaches a point of post-traumatic stress disorder. But the varying degrees as you move up is kind of based on the intensity of the symptoms that you see. And those symptoms, you know, we, we have talked about before, um, which include things like inability to concentrate, uh, problems with memory, uh, problems learning, um, not being able to sleep, jumping to anger, being more angry than the, the situation would allow for, um, having a negative worldview after the event, uh, dissociation and detachment where I don't want to feel any more depression. You know, those symptoms that we've talked about before, if I have two or three of those every once in a while, guess what? I'm human. But if I have four or five of those consistently and they get stronger and stronger, I'm having a traumatic reaction. And so while that's not a definition, that is a way of measuring, looking at behavior, looking at a response that comes after an event, and then being able to judge the intensity of that tells us to what degree are they having a traumatic response to this. And so that's the best answer I can give you, Delilah, is I can't give you really a definition other than what is measurable is the body's response and the behavior that comes from that. We can't really measure the emotional response. We can't really measure the psychological response. But we can, we can measure what's happening in the body and use that to kind of determine the degree to which a person is having a traumatic response. Long answer to a short question. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Well, is, is it, is it uh, prolonged in terms of the timeline? Like if these four or five symptoms persist and they're still there two weeks, four weeks, is that the point at which you, this is a, a bona fide trauma? You know, the guideline for us tends to be if there is an event and you start to have some of those symptoms after three days, the official diagnosis is called acute stress disorder. And acute stress disorder can only be used from three days after the event until one month after the event. If those symptoms persist for a month and they are extreme and meet all of the criteria, then you can call them post-traumatic stress disorder. But that has, you have to wait a month for that. So, so the guideline kind of says if a person's having any degree of this, even not PTSD, but any degree of this response for about a month, then you need to start taking it seriously. I want to add one more thing. The new criteria that came out a couple of years ago now say that it doesn't have to be a single event, that if you're exposed to details of trauma over a period of time, over time your traumatic reaction can increase, increase, until eventually you can be diagnosed with PTSD. So even being exposed to details, and that's like people who, the examples they give in, our, in, in, in the, in the um, Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders is uh, law enforcement personnel who have to listen to um, stories of sexual child abuse over and over and over again. Well, they're not the only ones that listen to that. Look at social workers. Look at frontline mm-hmm. workers that, uh, and advocates that work with kids. Look at school teachers. Look at, you know, people in, in, in um, emergency rooms, you know. So what this is saying is over time, if you're exposed to the details of trauma over time, um, that can affect you, and you can eventually qualify for a diagnosis of PTSD as a result of that. I, well, very interesting, and, I yeah, I, I, I totally agree with the fact that, uh, I mean, sometimes we hear the term and maybe we think that it is misused or overused, but mm-hmm. then again, mm-hmm. if it's it used in context correctly, I mean, I don't know how often you have encountered that or seen, seen that online or whatever, but mm-hmm. um, you certainly have given us, you know, sort of a benchmark definition of, of you know, what may occur. Um, can we, before we get into specific techniques and whatnot, I have a couple other things I wanted to, to ask. Um, the whole idea of having therapy or being in therapy, or as I sort of uh, made up the term online, therapized, because I have been for uh, m- over many years, many years ago. Hopefully I'm as well adjusted as I'm ever going to be at this point. But, you know, who knows, we can always be traumatized again. But the the fact is, um, back 35 years ago when my dad was killed or 
earlier on when I'm using myself as an example because it's just the easiest way and I'm a relatively open person when it comes to things like that to help other people learn. A person having a a lifelong disability, um, people's perception of somebody who is different, whether it be disability, whether it be sexual orientation, differences, whether it be, I don't know, racial, what have you, or a trauma dealing with homicide, sexual abuse, whatever, um, I still feel as if, to some extent, for people to admit that they have been in therapy, there's somewhat of a stigma attached to that. Would would you agree, and, and would you... Can you tell us if you, you think it has evolved and changed for the better, Dwayne? Yeah. Um, um, I, I think that, yes, for some folks maybe there still is a stigma, but I think over the last 20 years or so um, we have really significantly shifted in our view of, of uh, who needs mental health support and, and what that means. Um, I think, you know, maybe 30 years ago, when I was a kid, um, for somebody, it, it, it was whispered that, oh, they're seeing a psychiatrist or, you know, it was a, it was a secret, you know, and it actually might even reflect on your family if somebody was having mental health support. I think um, we've come a long way, and for a number of reasons. One is public figures are being much more open about their own need for uh, mental health support. We've had sports um, uh, folks talk about suffering with depression or suffering with anxiety. We've had certainly politicians talk about them or their family members that have needed even significant support um, uh, as a result of, of sometimes even um, brain damage or, um, uh, you know, all, I'm sorry, yeah, Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's has actually worked, uh, it, it has been one of those things that has moved, that, that shifted the idea of mental health as well. As more and more people become aware and more and more people's families are touched by it and, and realizing that, yes, this is, a, this is a mental disorder. And, you know, we had a president who suffered from it. So, um, and we've had a couple of first ladies who really advocated for mental health uh, and, and making it accessible. And then think about our attitude about post-traumatic stress disorder. After the Vietnam War, um, first of all, it was, it, it was recognized that some people were having trouble coming back from the war, but they were stigmatized because of it. Now, um, we really feel... Um, a move that our soldiers need to be taken care of. And if they're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, they, we should be demanding that they're getting help for that. So I think we've really shifted just because um, so many people are being so open about how it has benefited them. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there are still some folks that, that kind of look at it negatively and are afraid of it, but it's probably because they don't understand what it is. And they're afraid of that old model of, you know, laying on the couch and the, Doc sitting behind you saying, so tell me how you feel, you know. (laughs) Can we dispel that myth? I mean, a lot of people, I think, no matter whether they they use their point of reference if they've never been in therapy, uh, a movie they've seen or something on TV, Mm -hmm. and it's the only therapy, and we're going to get into this, of course, because there's many different techniques, the only therapy they know about is, oh, I have to talk about it, talk therapy, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And lying on a couch and and spilling my gut, so to speak. It and that's not necessarily yeah. so, right? That's not necessarily so. And there's another perspective to look at, which is there are many different forms of mental health provider now. Uh, it used to be the psychiatrist was kind of it, and um, the psychiatrist, for people who don't know, uh, is a medical doctor as well. So they not only go to school to, to get their uh, uh, doctorate in psychiatry, but that also means they have to also go to school to become an MD, and uh, they can prescribe medication and that sort of thing. And so for a long time, that was our image of mental health. But now we have social workers. We have LPCs like me, licensed professional counselors. Um, uh, you have, have family, uh, family and child therapists. You have more specialized folks who are doing the work Um, And it's not uh, that image of of laying in the couch and spilling your guts. And we've also kind of moved to a place where we realize that while talk therapy is important and it helps a person to 
to, to, to learn to understand their motivation and what's happening and whatever, that there are several modalities of talk therapy, but there are also sort of, um, what am I going to say, not alternative, but secondary therapies that I'll tell you, most mental health folks now don't just sit and talk. They have a specialty in some other form of, of intervention that helps the client to, to see their situation in a different way and, and make some changes. Well, that's good because I think everyone, you know, you you have a lot of tricks in your bag then, depending mm-hmm. upon what the what the per, what the person needs, right? And right. It, it it's not one size fits all, at least not in my experience. And um, but how would I mean initially? How would where would one look for trusted resources to be, to to, to start to find a good therapist even before you get to one and questioning mm-hmm. them. I mean, people r- rarely use phone books these days, so I'm, I'm not going to look there. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's the, true. the that's yellow true. pages. Or I don't know if we would trust online. I mean, word of mouth. What would be the best the best resources to begin your search if you really think this this is what I have to do, and then. Of course, there's the insurance issue as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and that's where most people have to start is does their insurance uh, limit them to just the providers within the plan? Um, right. Now, as a therapist, I don't take insurance, and many therapists don't anymore because the amount of time it takes to bill insurance companies and keep uh, having to, to go back to them and get to, and, and collect your money we could not have an hourly rate for our client that covers all of that time. And Mm -hmm. so many of us just don't accept insurance. What that means is the client pays us, and then they go to their insurance company and ask to be reimbursed for that. So whenever I start with a new client, I explain that to them and and have them check with their insurance company to make sure that insurance company will reimburse them, or are they limited to just the providers within that plan. So sometimes for folks, that's where they have to start. Um, but, um, you know, the, you, a lot of employers provide an, uh, an employee assistance program where, that you can contact, and they'll have referrals to, to mental health folks as well. Um, but, you know, you said maybe not the Internet, maybe not word of mouth, but maybe. Maybe that is the best way. You know, if you're talking to someone and they happen to say, well, you know, I was, I was really suffering from depression and I found a therapist that really helped me, that's word of mouth, and that's not... I think that's a good way of, of saying, well, well, what more do I need to, 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 to know about this person? Also online, if you kind of search your uh, condition, um, mm-hmm. names will come up. And, you know, guess what? Everything you read on the Internet isn't true. But um, it at least might um, uh, help you to narrow down a list by looking by zip code or whatever. Every formal um, organization like the American Mental Health Counselors Association and the American Counseling Association, they all have lists of people who are members, and you have to meet a criteria to be members, and, and you can find them by location. So those are good resources too. And then if you know the kind of therapy you want, you can search that out too because most types such as hypnotherapy, such as uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR, um, you know, the different uh, types of therapies also have organizations and have lists of therapists. So um, I think finding a list of therapists isn't so, so hard. I think it's knowing what to ask the therapist when you contact them that right. is more important so that you kind of get a a sense that yeah this is going to work or it's not. And and do they by and large do individual licensed professional counselors or others do they do you advertise individually, you know, I'm I'm here for, uh, you know, is is that you know, something that's promoted? One of the one of the things they don't teach us in college is how to to run a business and most of us that are in private practice have really struggled with that and and how do you advertise and and is that appropriate? And, you know, for years it was not appropriate to advertise that you're a mental health person. Now it's, it's okay to do it, but how do you do it? And through what kind of vehicle do you do it? So some do. Um, you may see ads for them. I don't. Um, um, to, to, 
I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, I go through cycles where, like right now, I'm not accepting any new clients until May, and this that hasn't happened for a couple of years. So, But then there are times that I'm like, wishing I could go out on the street and beg for clients. So, um, so it, it's really hard, and I don't have a business sense of, of what what kind of advertising works or not. So, yeah, some do, and it doesn't mm-hmm. reflect poorly or positively if they advertise. They just, they, they're better at it than I am, you know, right, as far as getting business. the name out there. Yeah, I, I see. Well, um, with regard to what you just alluded to, I think, you know, part of the the really meat of, of this show, uh, besides getting into the, some of the specific approaches, is, okay, you've, you've identified maybe a practice or mm-hmm. have identified you through a trusted friend, word of mouth, or, or someone you work with, whatever. What, let's, let's discuss a bit about what kinds of questions should you go in and, and, and ask? I mean, a lot of people are intimidated. We, we're all schooled that we should go into our doctor and have a list of questions. And a lot of people feel intimidated, and I hope I'm sure you do something to make them feel more comfortable that, that yes, it's okay to ask me these questions. You know, uh, so mm-hmm. how, how does that dynamic work, and what kinds of questions would you ask coming into a brand-new office? Uh, that's great. Um, first of all, people should remember that you are the consumer and you are shopping. And if you don't like what you buy, you return it or you'd go to something else. You are in control of this relationship. And again, for, for many years, the idea of the psychiatrist and he's in control or she's in control and, and that sort of thing, I think we've moved away from that significantly. But I know a lot of people are intimidated. And you know, my, my rule is this. If you go for three sessions and, and it's not working, um, it's time to move and it's time to fire your therapist. And keep in mind that you can do that. But, but that's kind of extreme. You talk to the therapist and say, I don't think this is working. I need a referral to someone that works better. But back to your question about how do you start, before you even know what questions to ask, is the therapist going to give you the opportunity to ask questions? In other words, I believe very strongly a therapist needs to have a an informational phone call with a new client, no charge. It's an informational phone call to answer that client's questions, to talk about what I have to offer. And then at the end of that phone call, I'll say, and I do this all the time, so are you comfortable talking to me right now? Because this is kind of the way I am. And if they feel comfortable <laughs> yep. at the end of that call, um, then we say, okay, so let's, let's talk about setting up an appointment. If, you're, if the person you're calling, the therapist you're calling, doesn't allow for informational phone calls at the beginning or doesn't make themselves available, move on. Mm. Because you don't know what you're buying. You're buying a pink well, coach true. in that case. And you end up charging your insurance company for a first session only to find out, oh, my God, I can't, this isn't going to work. And, and you've wasted um, money and a lot right. of plans. In a lot of insurance plans, you only have a certain amount of money to spend every year on mental health. So um, that's the first thing. Are they willing to talk to you? Um, And so when I get an email from a potential client or a phone call, my first response to them is, when can we schedule an informational call? Just to talk to each other and answer any questions you may have. And then I will set an appointment after that. So I think that's that's a good place to start. Are they willing to say, um, you know, and, and if I just say, no, you have to make an appointment, what I'm saying is I can handle everything and everybody, and no, no therapist can do that. So it could be that you get in and then I find out as a therapist, oh, this is not something I deal with either, but I got your money, didn't I? And I think that's, yeah, um, yeah wow. I don't think that's, <laughs> that's appropriate. So that's that's one thing to think about. But then as far as questions to ask, you know, I think, first of all, just describing why you think you need therapy. Um, and you don't have to go into a lot of detail because you may not see this person. So you don't want to give up a lot of stuff, but you do want to talk about, you know, I've just been feeling so very depressed and it's hard for me to get out of bed. It's hard for me to do things. And this is new for me and I just don't know what to do about this. And, and so that's why I want to see therapy, seek out therapy. Um, and then let the therapist kind of ask some questions and, because it's important for me as a therapist to know that I can help you. Why would I make an appointment with you if I don't work with depression? So um, 
uh, just having a conversation. And then the second question should be, um, what modality, how would you approach my situation? What, what skills, what techniques, what modality would you use? And if they pretty much say, well, um, I think we can, we, we, we'll talk. And if that's really all they have to offer, you know, yeah, maybe they're good, maybe they're not. But most therapists today have two or three different modalities that they use, and they should explain them to you and say, well, you know, we can try two or three things. And depending on how things work out as we talk to each other, then I'll better know which one will work for you. But here are the three things that we might think about. So that when you're walking in, you know, okay, we're going to talk, but we're also, I also have these other things that the therapist may use that will, will help benefit me. And I can also look them up before I get in to see if this is something I might want to try. Mm-hmm. Yeah, about being an informed consumer, that's so good. Is it, is it really an interactive process and should it be, Dwayne? Absolutely. Um, one of the things... There's also a set of questions you should ask when you do go in for that first appointment and some things to look for. Number one, when you get there and you first see the therapist, what's the first words out of their mouth? Um, what insurance do you Do you and extend themselves to you or yeah. do they expect you to come in and meet them behind their desk? Um, how available are they to you physically is very important. Um, um, if they keep the desk between you and them, then... I, I'd, I'd move on. Um, you know, how's the office laid out? What's the most prominent thing in their office? Is their desk the most prominent thing? That's a, that's a symbol of power. Or are the two chairs where you're going to sit the most prominent thing, where the work is going to be done? Um, those kinds of things. Um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your question. <laughs> what, was, what was your question, Donna? No, <laughs> no I, I, I was just, I was relating that, that, um, the way when someone comes in initially, you know, you you do your your social graces and all, and I mean, how is how is that first thing? To, okay, so what? Hi, uh, where do we start? Tell me, mm-hmm. tell me about your immediate problem, or tell me about uh, background yeah. of your childhood. I mean, just how would that first session begin in terms of the dynamics, and then you know, establishing a rapport, that kind of thing. Well, so when they come into my office, and I'm not saying I'm the only way, but this, this is how I do it. When they come into my office, I, this is their first visit. So I ask just basic conversation. So do you have any trouble finding the place? Uh, were, my instru- were my directions good? Um, I always have a, a, a thing of little bottles of water in my office, which is behind the client's chair. I always say, there's water there. When you come in, just grab it. You don't have to ask. It's there. Um, just grab some water. Um, and, and go ahead and have a seat. And uh, so are you comfortable to, to start? And um, they'll say, yeah, because that's what they're there for. And, <laughs> of course, here's the other thing. You have to sign a, a consent. You have to sign an agreement uh, with a therapist, uh, which is a, for their liability. So I usually email that before the session, and I'll email it and say, here, print this out, fill it out, and bring it with you, and that will save us some time in the first session. So I'll ask them if they have the form. We'll look at things on the form. Then I say, so are you ready to get started? You know, in our phone call, you talked to me about depression and about how difficult it is to get up in the morning and that sort of thing. So let's just, let me ask you, how hard was it to get up this morning? How hard was it to get here? And that's how I'll start. I won't mm-hmm. start by saying, in fact, I rarely want them to tell me the difficult stuff until we find out how is it affecting them. You know, that's why they called. It isn't so much that I'm depressed. It's that I can't get out of the bed and go to work. The problem is I can't go to work. Talk about that. Let's talk about how hard it is to go to work. How have you made yourself do that? That sort of thing. And then eventually we'll get to, well, let's let's look at this depression. What's the root of this? Where are we going to go? By then they're a lot more comfortable because – we're trying to do some problem solving first before we get into the, quote, therapy, unquote. And I think what yeah. you're going to find with, with mental health work today is much of it is focused on let's, let's solve the way it's manifesting. Let's solve the problem you're having so you can function better, and then let's dig into where is this coming from. 
which allows the client then to keep functioning as they're doing the work of of, of uh, introspection and that sort of thing. Right. It, it sounds more comforting. Delilah, I was just wondering, as a, you know, average observer and working with a lot of different people and a consumer, would you would there be certain things that would make you feel more comfortable, or the type of approaches Dwayne had just mentioned, or would that would, would that make you feel comfortable? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree with everything Dwayne has said so far. I think you know, one thing, for people who really have a hard time affording mental health care because. Maybe they don't have insurance or maybe their insurance doesn't cover it or maybe the therapist doesn't take insurance like like you said uh, before. How does that contribute to their stress level? And and what kind of options are available to that person who could really benefit by therapy but mm-hmm. just really puts it off and puts it off and puts it off because they don't feel like they can afford it? Well, almost every therapist, at least every therapist I know, offers a sliding scale. And what that means is if you come in and say, I don't have insurance, I'm going to have to pay out of pocket, or if you call me or email me uh, or through my website or whatever, and you say, I really can't afford um, your rate, um, um, but I really think I need some help, and you seem to be the person, based on what I know about you, that could help me best, can we work something out? Absolutely. I'll do a sliding scale based on your your income. And I'm not going to say, oh, tell me what your last tax return was. Some therapists do, and that's fine. Agencies do. If you go to a therapeutic, if you go to a counseling center, they're going to, if you want a sliding scale, they're going to ask you your income and that sort of thing. I'm going to ask, you know, so so my rate is this. Uh, what do you feel you can afford when you come? And usually they lowball it. And so then I'll say, well, you know, that's kind of low. Is there, can we come to a compromise here? And that's actually a form of therapy. It's a negotiation going on here. Um, and we'll come to something that is reasonable. And I, I, I do that regularly. Um, so that, but I never do counseling for free, and I'll tell you why. And, and this happens a lot with people who come through EAPs, employment assistance programs. When people don't have to pay, it doesn't they, – they don't really think twice about not showing up or, or not canceling. And so we have scheduled this hour that even, though, even if I'm only going to get five bucks for this hour, I, I've scheduled that. And if you don't show up, if you don't uh, uh, call me and tell me you're not coming, there's an hour that I actually could have made my usual rate on by scheduling somebody else in there. Right. Incentivizing so, them, right? They have to they have to be empowered to there has to be you know, a stake there for them too. Yes. Yes. Right? And so if yes. I invest a little bit of money it's gonna have more value to me. Exactly. If they're not willing to invest something and and like you say, there's always some sort of a uh, sliding scale situation yes. that um that makes it affordable, that makes it this person able to do what they know they need to do, but if it's free, there's no value to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, very important. I've gone as low, I've gone as low as five bucks a session, um, depending on the situation the person was coming from. So wow. yeah, absolutely. Or would you alternately refer to some to someone else, and depending upon what the circumstance was or the problem, or say, you know, I'm 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 filled right now, but I refer to my colleague or whatever? Yes, um, and most therapists do that, um, right. particularly if it's a specialty. Um, um, or if we have, I, I believe very strongly in the third session rule, if, if you think you're connecting with your therapist, go for three sessions because not a lot can get done in the first session. So that's not a good way to say, no, nah, this isn't going to work unless it's really horrible. Um, mm-hmm. But give it three sessions and then, Ask the therapist, on our third session, can we spend 15 minutes talking about how this is going? The therapist should jump at the chance. And if they don't, again, you've got to think about, hmm, maybe this isn't the therapist for me. I always do it on the third session. I leave the last 15 minutes and say, so how's this going? We've met three times now. 
do you get a sense that we're heading where we need to go? Um, do you think this is beneficial? Or do you, do you need me to, to think about giving you a referral to someone else that might be better suited for you? Um, so, yes, absolutely. Referrals are um, um, a, a big part of what we do. Or somebody could come in saying they want to work on trauma and, and addiction, and they come in and, and perhaps they have uh, a disorder that I'm not real skilled at, like um, 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 borderline personality disorder or one of the, the more difficult ones that, you know, I've spent my life digging into trauma and learning about that, and other therapists have dug into other disorders and are, are expert in them. And so there's no reason for me to be working with somebody that I don't know the disorder. I'm, right. I'm not very good at, at um, Asperger's. I'm not very good at uh, that, that whole spectrum. I haven't had training in it. Why would I take a client um, that that's an issue? So, um, yeah, so I think right. I answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and I think that is extremely uh, worthwhile because there are a lot of people in that situation, and and you know five dollars is five dollars, and uh, if it comes down to that, and at least that's their contribution, and who knows, maybe they'll bring you a a plate of chocolate chip cookies too to to say your appreciation, <laughs> you know. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely, it has to be worth it on both ends, and you you have to you have to give it a. I think people are too quick to just throw in the towel with something that is new or challenging that, you know, they want to feel comfortable like in five minutes and you Mm -hmm. have, and I can say this about myself too, because I'm not a patient person in many ways. And I have to step back and say, okay, you know, let's give it more time and be patient. And people tell me this too. And so I'm my own worst enemy sometimes. And so we have to think about that. But, well, you know, counseling, People usually come to counseling and 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 think with, with this for the first time with this thought of okay you're going to fix me, and they don't realize that my job is actually to guide you so that you can fix you yourself. Can, you know that's yeah. the important thing. I'm not going to fix you, but I can help guide you so that you figure out what you need to do to make your life better for you. It's not right. my job to have the magic wand. So, and you isn't this too. Um, we as the client have to do work in introspection and maybe they're going to give you homework assignments. It's not just, okay, this one hour and I'm going to sit in the chair and then we'll wait till next week. It's, isn't it kind of like you have to be working on these things or else why go? Yes. I always assign homework, always assign homework. You know, sitting in my office one hour every two weeks and you feel good, great, but that's not helping you live your life better. And so I give assignments that let you take what we've talked about out into your life and try to practice it, try to come up with how is this going to work for me? Is this a good coping mechanism? Or as I think about who I really am, does this trait show up out here in the world? And sometimes maybe not. And they come back and say, you know, I looked, I looked for that trait and I just didn't find it. And good. All right. Let's, let's move forward and look, and look at something else. So, mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. Homework is is. In my in my opinion, homework is an essential part of therapy. Well, great, Dwayne. Before before we get too too much further into the show, could you go over some of the options for trauma? We kind of you know started out the show defining trauma and and telling our listeners what it is. Um, what what kind of options and different therapies are there out there that people could maybe? Um, research on their own or research with a therapist that may work Mm -hmm. for one Mm -hmm. and may not work for someone else. Can you quickly go over the different areas of Absolutely. um, And and there are many, many, many. I'm only going to touch on a few, but I'm going to touch on the ones that, that are used for trauma. Let me start again by saying I think what we've found in the field is that while talk therapy is useful, it is not by itself necessarily the only, um, mechanism that can help folks. And we've also found that talk therapy actually can take uh, quite a while. And most people don't want to go to therapy for the rest of their lives. Isn't that interesting? Um, um, And so most therapists have several different modalities or um, uh, secondary uh, methods 
uh, interventions that they may use with a client. And so I want to focus on some of those because in all trauma, talk therapy is going to be a big part of it. You need to talk through it. But there are some other ways that will be helpful as well. And remember I said very often we want to look at what is the presenting problem. If we can help you function better and help eliminate the symptom, then let's get to work with where the root of it is. Um, so that's what a lot of the therapies are. And, of course, a big movement now, as many people know, in, in the mind-body movement idea and, and neuroscience and understanding the brain and how it functions and using that physiological information to help support a person who's going through therapy. So there's a lot of modalities um, that have evolved out of that. I'm going to talk about a couple, and, and they fall under the the general heading, the ones I'm going to talk about, of bilateral interventions. Bilateral meaning, um, you know, our brain is, is divided into two parts, the left and the right hemisphere, and that um, the functioning across those, those hemispheres can be interrupted with trauma. In fact, um, when you go into fight, flight, freeze, that part of your brain, the cerebral cortex, that top part of your brain, actually doesn't function very much. You're, you're running on hormone if you're in a fight, flight, freeze response. And so helping a client to, to utilize the cerebral cortex again is one of the things that we focus on. Cerebral cortex is responsible for uh, projection into the future, creating concepts, uh, all the executive functions, uh, empathy, sympathy, uh, analyzing, all of those kinds of things. And so bilateral means that um, we can actually do things with the body to make the brain work better. So if you were to slap your left hand on your left leg, you actually just stimulated the right hemisphere. If you slap your right hand on your right leg, you've just stimulated the left hemisphere. And so we've come to understand that by using the body bilaterally, like riding a bicycle, walking, um, using a treadmill, that kind of thing, actually helps the brain to process across um, the lobes. And so uh, bilateral processing is one of the things that a lot of therapists use. Um, I, I, on my, I've told the story before. I'm on the coffee table in my office. I have... Uh, a slinky, two stress balls, and a tennis ball. And what I notice is, without ever mentioning them, when the client has reached a point that they've got something that's very difficult to talk about or they're stuck on, it's natural for them just to pick something off of the, my coffee table and start fiddling with it with their hands. What they're doing is by using their hands, they're actually getting their brain to process better. So there's things like uh, tappers, which are... Um, uh, little pads that you hold in your hand and they actually tap the palm of your hand, they expand and contract, that, that we can use when a client is stuck. Um, and, and that tapping of the palms of their hands helps to move back and forth. The one that many people know about is EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And, and it's a bilateral intervention, very complex intervention, but it's also one of the most used for trauma, which is... Uh, it started off with the therapist. Now, understand the therapist has to be credentialed to do this, and that takes many years and, and, and a lot of money, quite honestly, to become certified in EMDR, and you should only use a, a certified EMDR person. But the idea was that if they held their fingers in front of your face and you followed their fingers moving back and forth with your eyes, that eye movement actually stimulates the alternate side of the brain so that eye movement helps the brain to function better. It's become more sophisticated. Many people use a, a light bar where the, the light travels back and forth across the bar for your eye to, to follow. If, if you have vision problems, they will use hearing um, uh, earphones and, and sound in alternate ears that will do some of the same thing. But bilateral intervention is the general term for all of these. And it really helps a person who's either stuck or who is um, kind of um, uh, just staying in the trauma and, and not able to get out of it and just kind of trapped in the images and that's all they can think about and that sort of thing. Um, or um, um, it's stuck in some kind of way that they just can't move past. EMDR is very good for that. 
very powerful. And do you do this, Dwayne, for like sustained for like five or ten minutes, or does yes. it depend mm-hmm. upon yeah. what kind of stuck they are? Yeah, and and they will almost immediately find relief in doing that. Um, they'll get past the stuck point in that session while they're working on it. But again, you have to be certified to do this because um, you're also unsticking other stuff associated with it. And if they flood with a bunch of stuff, you got to know what to do with that and and yeah. how to help them if 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 it opens up, you know, a floodgate. So. Um, if you're thinking about EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is very popular and by the APA and the ACA um, considered one of the most effective treatments for trauma, make sure your 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 therapist is certified um, before mm-hmm. going to them. Oh, okay. Very interesting. Um, what's uh, I know a couple of their approaches, and just to let you know, we have about 13 minutes remaining or so of the well, show. Yeah, I know. That's not enough. Jeez, we need we need another hour, Dwayne. You I can know, come back. I know. I let's, know. let's look at a couple of other modalities. Um, okay. There, there, visualization is a general term is used a lot with trauma as well. And and um it has to do with how you're visualizing the story. What are those pictures in your head? And so there are a lot of different ways that people approach visualization. This actually kind of became popular with neuro-linguistic programming several years ago, but now so many split-offs from that, it, it's hard to even label some of the interventions. But um, one of the things I do is I work, um, um, not to give them a plug, but I will anyhow, with the National Center for Missing Exploited Children. And all child pornography found on the Internet in the United States is reported to them. They kind of store it and analyze it so that law enforcement has a place to come to to, to solve cases and to, to find victims and to find perpetrators. So you have about 70 staff members there that analyze this child pornography all day, every day. So sometimes they get an image in their head they can't get rid of or they see something in a video that's just outrageous and they can't get past it. So some of the things we do with visualization is trick the brain. And um, so, so doing things like watching yourself, no, seeing what happened, if you've had a traumatic event or whatever, watch it like it's a movie. And tell me as a moviegoer what you're seeing on the screen. What that does is it detaches me from it so that I'm not going to have the traumatic reaction telling the story but I can tell you the story, and, and um, we can look at the parts that cause you the most uh, discomfort and look at them differently and, and, and reframe them. Sometimes we ask them to look at that movie in black and white because that moves it to a whole different part of the brain um, than color. Your brain thinks if it's in color, it's participating. If it's in black and white, it observes. So that way I can oh, tell the story. Yeah, that way I can tell the story without getting involved in it. Um, uh, so, so using um, imagery and and um, so I'll, I'll leave that there and move to something called retelling. Um, there's a, a whole avenue that says you have to tell the story over and over again. This isn't for everybody, and none of these is for everybody. Each one of these, you know, a, a person usually is drawn to one of these. You wouldn't use all of these for everybody. And, and some people can't tell the story, and so retelling wouldn't work for them. But the idea is if I tell the story over and over again, I desensitize myself. Desensitize, uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. And one of the things that you notice when people kind of start getting bored telling a story, they start interjecting maybe a little bit of humor or, or whatever. As soon as that starts happening, the story stops being traumatic for them. It just becomes a bad memory. Um, this is not, this was very popular, oh, I'd say six, seven, eight years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And you don't hear as much about it now because we have learned these other visualization kinds of things that seem to work much more quickly, but retelling can do it. Retelling can be very effective. And um, retelling can happen verbally because the person needs to say the words, or they can write it. 
there's, there's the idea of narrative. That's a whole new avenue too, the idea of trauma narrative. What does your narrative sound like? What does your narrative look like if you write it down? And then kind of analyzing the words that you use and the words that show a lot of impact or a lot of power, let's focus on what was it that caused you to use that word because that's telling me that part of the trauma is significant for you. Um, so, you know, like I said, there's just many, many, many avenues. Um, let's see. Um, oh, yeah, hypnotherapy. Hypnotherapy and play therapy as well, <laughs> yeah. right? Hypnotherapy um, actually um, is not that different, really, from uh, EMDR. Hypnotherapy says um, the, the reason I would use hypnotherapy with a client, and I am a certified clinical hypnotherapist, would be if the images are so powerful that, that they can't go to sleep that they, um, it's there all the time and I can't do my job and whatever, then we would go into a tr what's called a trance, which is really just a, an extreme relaxation. They have full control while they're hypnotized. They can at any time bring themselves up out of it. It's not the stage version that everybody sees of me making them quack like a duck. Um, but um, <laughs> And going back and, and once I get totally relaxed, then look at that image that's causing me so much trouble and um, changing it to some degree. Um, I had a, a quick example. I had a, a, an advocate who, who did a lot of work with um, in home, and she had a situation where a gentleman had completed suicide, and she was having dreams that he was telling her, this is your fault, this is your fault, this is your fault, because she had worked with him before. And... Um, we were able to, in hypnotherapy, take that dream, stop it at a certain point where she could say, no, I gave you all the resources that could have worked for you and you chose not to use them. I, this is not my fault. And we practiced that in hypnotherapy. And so the next time she had a dream, she was able to do that in the dream. And that was the last time she had the dream. So, wow, so you interrupted um, the dream and changed it, changed the script? Yes. yes. Wow, yep. that's pretty powerful. Yeah, and it's actually easy to change dreams. It just takes a lot of work to do. It's, it's an easy thing to do, but it takes a lot of practice. So, mm -hmm. so those are just some of the interventions that, that yeah. are out there. Um, do you um, want to mention? Um, do you want to mention something with regard to play therapy? Sure, sure. Play therapy we, is excellent, and, we and most people think of, of play therapy as just for kids. It actually isn't. Play therapy is symbolic representation of the event. It allows me to play out the event through symbols. For, it could be on a sand tray with little tiny characters. Um, it could be with dolls. It could be drawing. It could be a variety of puppets. It could be a variety of different ways. But what it does for children, children don't have the words necessarily to express what happened and how they felt about it, but they can act it out. And so they use these characters, these little little characters or the, the puppets or the dolls, to act out what happened. And um, it allows them to make sense out of it because they can control the characters and say what was said and do the interaction. And so play therapy is very powerful because they can't talk it. They don't have the language skills. Well, for people, for adults who are uncomfortable talking about it, this kind of acting out can be a very good way of symbolically representing the event as well. And when I, as a therapist, watch this, I can see where their interpretation of the event might be different than what really happened in the event, because that often happens with trauma, or what part of the event is most powerful for that client, and then let's work to, to give that part a little different meaning or value uh, so it's not so painful for them. So, yes, play therapy is very powerful, and, and unfortunately a lot of adults think they're above it and don't allow themselves to do it, but if they get into it, it can be really helpful for them as well. Mm. Does it depend upon, um, in terms of the length of therapy um, and the, the specific trauma, in terms of getting resolution, does it, yeah. is, is there a lot of variability there? I mean, do you yeah. typically 
see somebody for at least six weeks to six months, or does it just really depend? Oh, yeah, I never put a, a time limit on it. And yeah. here's why, because when you're dealing with trauma, remember, right. I'm traumatized because of the meaning and value I gave it. So when I start to work through the trauma, well, where did I get that meaning in my the experience in my life? Often trauma opens up other stuff. And... Um, or often people come and their coping mechanism is also uh, drugs and alcohol or some other uh, self-destructive coping mechanism. So you kind of mm-hmm. have to deal with that too. And so you may mm-hmm. have worked through a lot of the trauma, but they're still struggling with the addiction or whatever. So, so it's hard to put a label on it because the trauma can be so related to so many other things that they've dealt with. So, okay, so let's say domestic violence. So we've worked with the trauma of of your spouse having beaten you. But then it comes up this whole thing about, well, yeah, but the reason I'm comfortable in these situations is my mama got beat by my dad, and that's kind of how I think a man expresses love to a woman. Well, this is a whole new issue. You know, we're, now we have to work. This isn't about the domestic right. violence, but this is about uh-huh. the belief and values. So it's family relations, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it could be highly variable. Um, do, do you feel as if um, your your ability to um, have individual clients, and then you, you you also go out and you you do group trainings and you consult? Does that does that help in terms of making you the best kind of therapist you can be in terms of having the diversity that you seem to have? <laughs> You're asking me to analyze myself. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> um, I am. There's there's a, a whole lot of research being done about first responders and and why first responders are the way they are. And there's four different categories, and, and they're called sensation seekers. And I fall under one of those. And I am an experienced sensation seeker. I want to. Ex- what keeps me active is experiencing as many different things as I can and doing them well. And then when I've done them, I move to Mm -hmm. something else. So I function best when I am uh, uh, multi-focused. If I learned a long time ago, I cannot work a job where I do the same thing day after day. Um, Even if that means being a therapist and seeing different clients all day, that's still kind of doing the same thing day after day, and I'm not wired that way. Um, and so what I have found is I am fully fulfilled by um, doing some trainings, doing some uh, uh, um, uh, one-to-one clients, um, and some of those clients are Skype, some of those clients are, are face-to-face, and that fulfills me. I work best when I'm doing that. Also, when I do trainings, I'm training other mental health professionals, so part of me kind of goes with them to help their clients, and I kind of get a sense of fulfillment from that as well. So interesting question, and we are not going to analyze Dwayne any more than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just it sounds very much like, like what, I, what I like and appreciate. So we're, we're kind of cut from the same cloth there, but that kind of leads into since we're, we've, we've got about a minute and a half or so, can you, is there one overriding message you'd like to convey to our audience? And then also I'd like to, for you to give any general contact information if you'd like, Dwayne. Okay. All right. Well, I think the general um, statement I'd like to say is if you're having trouble living life, if you're having difficulty Um, you're struggling in life, consider the possibility of talking to someone about it. Now, if you're not comfortable with face-to-face counseling right off, there are a lot of helplines where you don't ever have to give your name, you don't even know the person on the other end, but you can say, you know, I just need to talk to somebody about this. And they may not even give you any therapy, but they're just there to listen. And the more comfortable you get at just telling other people what's going on, that in itself is help. And then you may feel more comfortable and say, well, you know, I think I could do a professional. I think I could could maybe seek out a counselor and try that. Um, So. Do not live alone. That's the bottom line. There are ways of getting help. Don't struggle with that alone. Excellent. Very good. How can how can people um, learn about um, the other things that you're doing? Where should they sure, contact the best, you? The, 
the best thing to do is go to my website because then you can send an email from the website and that sort of thing as well. The website is www.duane, D-U-A-N-E-T, as in Tom, Bowers, B-O-W-E-R-S, dot com, www.duanetbowers.com. Very good. Well, you know, I think you, you've given us a crash course and a very good foundation. Don't you agree, Delilah? We so appreciate it. We're going to uh, pass this around as always, and we continue to pass around your other maybe – this might be our sixth show or, or, or whatnot. So yeah. we, we will have you again as long as we keep on thinking of new topics, and there are always new topics. So, again, thank you. This has been so valuable we really do appreciate it. I think our benef- our audience is going to benefit immensely. And uh, Delilah, do, do you have uh, parting comments? Oh, I just want to thank Dwayne once again yeah. for, you know, giving our listeners an insight into the fact that there is help. There is help out there. Um, yeah. You know, don't don't go through life alone. I love I love that saying that you said. So thank you again, and we'll see you again sure. next time. Yes, okay. we will. Thank you. Thank you, Dwayne. We appreciate mm-hmm. it. Have a good weekend. We'll be in touch. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.